This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good morning, sir. It is, isn't it? Certainly a sunny day, but uh, windy, but I don't see any clouds, so that's a good thing. We're not yeah, getting there. Waiting for summer to kick in here. So yeah, it's it hasn't been overly warm, but yeah, I think our highest was last week, and it was like twenty-two degrees, which is smoking for up here. But yeah, it's they they say that mid-June is the weather you should be looking at for the rest of your summer to kind of dictate the fire season. So don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because well, we all know fire helps on the landscape, but when it takes off and runs. Uh, and affects infrastructure it's a bad thing so we'll see what happens because i know they're calling for july to be screaming hot but yeah we'll see what happens yeah for sure so this is uh, episode 79 tj schwanke uh, tj's uh, uh really really done well in the sheep world um he's somebody that i've always looked up to he's always got the right message when it comes to uh, wild sheep about harvesting sheep about supporting conservation organizations about putting sheep on the mountain um, so somebody I respect highly and, and, uh, on this podcast, TJ does not disappoint. Yeah. And he's also got the longest running hunting show on TV. I think it's what, 23, 24 years now. Outdoor quest. It's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, that's uh, impressive. That's a, uh, hell of a run and he's still doing well. I know he just, he, he and Vanessa just came back from Africa. Oh God, a couple of weeks ago and he's already wanting to go back. So, <laughs> and, yeah, and, awesome. and since he came back from Africa, he did a, cougar hunt and a bear hunt on the island so busy busy man in the uh, the hunting world yeah very cool um so just some housekeeping on our end um our raffles are still going uh go to our homepage wildsheepsociety.com there's uh, three cool raffles right now um the Coraline's rifle raffle um there's only about uh, two weeks left on that something like that so if you're gonna get a ticket uh pick it up that rmr rifle is stunning um so don't wait around there. Uh, this past weekend, we had our uh, two events go on. We had it at Crossberry Farms in Langley. We had an event there. Um, it was a great time. We had uh, Dr. Helen Swansa. We had um, Renee Thornton. Uh, we had the new film transmission showing, so that was fantastic. And then we were up in Kamloops on the Saturday um, for our Mount Mentor- Mentorship event. So great event. Great to see some friendly faces out there, people we haven't seen for a couple of years. And, uh, yeah, it was great. So. A lot of fun. Yeah, got to do uh, another one of those up here. We had a great time at Trench Brewing with uh, the premiere of Transmission. So need more of those up in the north. You you guys down there, well, always, always get the, the fun events, right? And yeah, got the Jurassic coming up too, and that'll be, yeah, two months. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Just under two months. Uh, the second week of August um, 11th and 12th in Chilliwack. It's going to be a great event. And then, uh, we've set our date. So mark it in your calendars. Our northern fundraiser is going to be February 4th at the Encana in Dawson Creek again. And then we're going to hold our Kamloops convention and AGM, obviously in Kamloops. And that's going to be on March 10th and 11th. So we got a lot of great stuff in store. Finally able to plan these um, these in-person events. And uh, we're, we're really stoked to get everyone back together. And, uh, you know, with all this angst of not being together for two years, um, once tickets go on sale and it, we're months away from oh, that, but once they do, don't, don't <laughs> wait around. Our Northern fundraiser was selling out in 24 hours in the past. And, um, there's no reason why that's not going to happen again this year with all the, uh, 
anxiousness and excitement of getting everyone together. So yeah, federal mandates have been lifted as of the other day, and yeah, it's it's going to be uh, spicy. We'll say everybody finally gets together and gets a little bit of the uh, the angst off, shakes the rust out, and there's going to be a lot of fun stories and. I'm sure a lot of drinks hoisted. So yeah, yeah those those will courage. go fast. Those will go fast. Like yeah. yeah, as you said, 24 hours for the the northern. I don't expect it to be any different for uh Kamloops, right? It's it'll be almost three years, right? For, yeah. for for people to get back together by the time it rolls around because it was cancelled in 2020 the day before, right? It's yeah. just wind yeah. out of the sails and yeah, it's gonna be a good time. And what? Ten months out and already starting yeah. to get ramped up. So be fun. Yeah, yeah. Pretty crazy. So um with that, we're off to episode seventy-nine and uh, we're gonna enjoy the company for the next hour of TJ Schwanke and uh enjoy. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Good morning, TJ. Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for for coming on and uh, always enjoy listening to to all you have to say and uh, reading your articles. And so uh, we're we're well overdue. So really excited to talk to uh, so much to talk about. So um, I guess let's start with uh, you got any plans for the fall to hunt any sheep or what are you doing there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great things, I guess, about uh, living in Alberta is we can still get a you know a general over-the-counter tag, which apparently are becoming more rare in Canada, as we just saw in BC lately. But uh, I'm pretty blessed. I live, you know, 45-minute drive. I can be putting on a backpack and going sheep hunting and, and some good quality sheep hunting still. So, um, you know, I'm kind of getting a little long in the tooth. So we ended up getting a couple horses here the last couple of years, too. So hopefully that'll help us get into the backcountry a little bit easier. Right on. So has that changed your hunting a lot? I've, I've actually never had the uh, opportunity to hunt off horse. Well, I've had the opportunity. I've just never done it to hunt off horseback. So has that has that evolved for you as a hunter and in, in the way you approach things when you're out in the field and sheep hunting with horses? Well, it's funny. I used to do a lot of sheep hunting on horseback 20 years ago and then just kind of got out of it and kind of got really serious about the backpack hunting. And one of the great things about where we live is, I mean, you can day hunt sheep where we live. I mean, it's, you know, if you can hike in three hours, you're in some of the best sheep country there is. So horses can be a pain in the butt. There's no question about it. I mean, they're great for getting you there and getting you out, but you know, what those horses do when you're actually hunting, you know, somebody has got to look after them or they decide to run home. So I'd rather not have them there, but um, it does definitely allow you to get a lot further back. And, you know, Alberta doesn't have the big wilderness areas like British Columbia does where you can ride for three or four days. We're pretty limited. Um, you know, the Wilmore would be our, our one spot. And I've, I have trailed horses in there quite a few times, but for the most part, you know, the guy with a backpack, um, can hunt Alberta pretty effectively. It's just the older you get, uh, the more comforts you look for, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well said. Um, you, you look for people to open your gates too, right? No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Vanessa. <laughs> 
Cool. So, TJ, you've, like you said, you've done this for a while now, and uh, I think it's been a couple years back now. You, you've managed to complete your FNAS, and for those listening, that's uh, four North American wild sheep, so getting all four species ticked off your list, which is a huge achievement. So, um, you know, maybe let's just go back to the very beginning and talk about, you know, where did your interest for, for sheep hunting come from, and, and how did you sort of get the sheep, the sheep itch or the sheep bug? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it is kind of funny. I mean, you know, probably my first exposure to any sheep hunting was in the pages of Outdoor Life and Field and Stream. And I credit Jack O'Connor, you know, as cliche as that sounds, for fostering that love of sheep in me. Um, I'd never really probably seen a bighorn sheep till I was in my 20s. Um, came out to Alberta on a vacation and saw three rams in the side of the ditch. And I mean, you know, in my mind, they were all massive full curl rams and, you know, they likely were three or four year old rams standing in the ditch. But in my mind, you know, that's the day that I knew I wanted to become a sheep hunter and kind of went back home. I was from Manitoba at the time, went back, kind of made some arrangements and decided I was going to move to Alberta and be a sheep hunter. And that was 1986. And that was the, the very first year that I've ever had a sheep tag in my pocket. And it was um, 1988 when I actually killed my my first ram in Alberta. And it did happen to be a really nice full curl ram. But, uh, you know, that was probably more good luck than good management. Right on. So are you able to to dive into some of these stories? I'd, li- I'd like to kind of hear the journey on, on which, you know, which rams, when, how, and uh, I know some of our listeners are wanting more sheep hunting stories, so no, let's start from the beginning and, and let's get into some of the meat and potatoes and, you know, some of the challenges. And then, you know, and I guess one of the things I've seen from your stuff online, TJ, is you're always, you're such a humble guy and you talk, yeah, I'm just an ordinary guy that got his finaz. Um So I'd like to to hear how, you know, a young aspiring 21-year-old that wants to get into sheep hunting that looks at all four species and does the math on it and goes, holy shit. So, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, that process, how you got those rams, uh, where you hunted and, and some of the highlights of, and maybe some of the downsides of the stories too. Cause I'm sure there's been a few times where you came out of the bush and went, Oh my goodness. Well, I, and true enough. And I, and I think the biggest thing to any you know young sheep hunters nowadays is don't be in a hurry. It's not going to happen overnight for most people. Um, I, I do know some young guys who've done it, you know, probably in two or three years. I know one guy that's done it in a year and um, I think their houses probably have the biggest mortgages and the truck have the biggest mortgages and, you know, whatever they decide to do financially is up to them. But uh, my finaz took me 32 years from the time I killed my first round till I killed my last one. And it was never a plan. I mean, I just fell in love with sheep hunting. And, and my first sheep hunt in Alberta, where I, I killed my first round in 1988, was probably the most gruesome backpack hunt I have ever been on in my life. Um, you know, we ended up, and it, a lot of it was just total inexperience and, and poor gear and everything else. But we spotted two rams the day before the season opened and, you know, figured, wow, we better get up and sleep on that mountain just underneath them in case there's some other hunters come up this valley or something. And we went up there and at about, uh, I don't know, it was about seven or eight o'clock at night, it started to pour rain and probably one of the most intense thunder lightning storms I've ever been in. You can see the lightning striking in the valley below us and... Uh, so sometime in the night that rain turned into snow and I was sleeping in a garbage bag and I had a yellow rain suit on. That was the kind of the extent of my quality mountain gear at that time and woke up in the morning and I had 18 inches of snow on top of me. I had frostbite on my feet. Uh, and of course the sheep were nowhere on the mountain. They'd gone down to the low country where any reasonable person would have gone. But, um, 
we went back down, kind of licked our wounds for a day or two, um, had a little run in with a grizzly bear. And uh, t- three days later, uh, we saw that those same two rams again. And I was pretty fortunate enough to take that ram and came out of that hunt. Um, you know, we had poor backpacks. We had big, heavy fleece gear on it. I, I remember it all today. It was like as poorly equipped as you could be, but we thought we were, you know, pretty serious sheep hunters at that time. And Came out to the truck and I don't know, my pack was whatever it was, 120, 140 pounds at that time. And uh, I was hurting. I was frostbite feet. And all I could think about is when can I do this again? And I think it was that day I, I knew I was going to be a sheep hunter forever. And I kind of look at people. I've taken a lot of people sheep hunting for their first time. And you can kind of tell after that first experience whether it's going to be a lifelong addiction or once was enough. And and for me, it did turn into an addiction. And I hunted... Um, Bighorns a lot in Alberta in, in those subsequent years, um, and I, I did manage to take two more bighorn um, over the course of probably about the next twenty five years, kind of thing. You know, passed up a, a ton of legal rams over the years. Uh, I think I've been on nineteen or twenty bighorn kills with with friends, so it just became all consuming. I mean, that's I missed a lot of good bird hunting. I missed a lot of good archery hunting because my total September and October were hundred percent dedicated to hunting sheep. And really from probably May until the end of October, that's all we did was, was climb mountains and look for sheep. And, you know, probably like a lot of you guys do, I get a lot of emails and questions on social media, you know, where should I go hunt? Where should, where should I go hunt sheep? And man, if you only knew the amount of time that sheep hunters put in to finding good spots and, and, and what, you know, you're kind of like asking for the key to their, their safety deposit box. And, you know, I don't mind giving guys broad, you know, areas to go check out, but if you're not willing to put the time and the boot leather into going and checking out, learning an area, you probably shouldn't be in those mountain sheep hunting. You know, if you want to go do it easily, that's not what sheep hunting is all about. So um, I had an opportunity to go film uh, a stone sheep hunt up on the Jennings River. And I I jumped at it. And and sheep hunting for me has never been about collecting sheep. It's never been about ticking, you know, the four species off a list or anything else. It's, It's been about experiencing hunting those sheep and, you know, hunting where they live. And that's the great thing about a North American sheep is they all live in such unique habitats. So I got a chance to go on along on this hunt up in the Jennings River and it was it turned to be a month long hunt. And, you know, we trailed, I think it was, we had 25 or 27 horses and uh, it was a pretty involved hunt. And long story short, we ended up taking a 40 inch ram on that um, trip. And it, it was probably the most magnificent ram, you know, I, I'd ever seen in my life. And I knew then that I had to hunt stone sheep myself. And the opportunity came two years later, um, Darwin Watson um, had a cancellation just kind of last minute and phoned me up and he says, listen, I've got this cancellation hunt. And um, he says, I need five grand for this hunt. And if anybody knows what stone sheep hunts cost nowadays, <laughs> they'll be shocked at that. But I mean, back, this was in the, you know, the mid nineties kind of thing. And there was a ton of money for me. And I, I said, you know, Darwin, I really appreciate the opportunity, but I, I just can't afford that. So kind of thought about it for the night and went back the next day. And I said, you know, I'm going to call Darwin back. So I called Darwin. And I said, you know, I think I can do this, Darwin. When do I need to be there? He goes, tonight. 
So jumped in the truck and drove up to Hudson Hope. And uh, so we had a 14-day stone sheep hunt booked. And this was kind of, it was right late September, early October. So it was getting pretty late for hunting sheep deep in the mountains. And uh, ended up getting paired up with that fellow by the name of Gary Dowd, which was one of Darwin's longtime guides and probably one of the best horsemen I, I think I, I've ever hunted with. And I think Gary guided, you know, 50 stone sheep at, at that point in his career. So we spent what was supposed to be two weeks in the mountains and, and Gary taught me so much about packing horses and, and sheep hunting. And I just kind of looked at it as an education. We didn't have a Wrangler. We didn't have anything. It was just Gary and I, and we took off into the mountains and um, it was on day 18 of my 14 day hunt that I finally killed a, a stone sheep ram. Um, and most of it was weather. We, um, we had rain and snow. And when we finally came out of the mountains with the stone sheep, um, the horses were going through, like the snow was chest deep on them. We were walking, you know, we just about lost horses over cliffs. We were fording flooded rivers and it was kind of everything a, a sheep hunt should be. And so that was kind of, I, I had my stone sheep, my sheep hunting career was as good as it could get at that point. Like I, I had no really thoughts about going on to, to do more hunts. And I guess just over the course of the years, I managed to get invited along on a couple of dull sheep hunts to film those and things like that. And then in 2000, uh, no, 2010, I'm sorry. Um, Harold Grindy from Ghana river outfitters called me up and he had a last minute cancellation on a, on a doll sheep hunt. And it was a good deal. Like it really was. And even, you know, we look now, it's like sheep hunts are so in demand right now. Like if you wanted to book a doll sheep hunt today, you'd probably wait in two, three, maybe four or five years to get a doll sheep hunt. Nowadays and the prices have gone through the roof just 10 years ago, those guys were still struggling to sell their hunts. And, you know, there was some good deals around. So Harold called me up and it was a good deal on a doll sheep hunt. Um, I was turning 50 that year. I think I figured, you know, boy, that's a heck of a, a 50th birthday present. So I uh, booked a doll sheep hunt with Harold and we hunted right up in the, on the northern end of his territory on the Ghana uh, River itself. And it's some rugged, rugged country up there. It's not your typical Mackenzie Mountains with the nice rounded tops on them. And um, had a young guide, uh, Trevor Shulist from British Columbia. And Trevor was everything you don't want in a guide. He was probably about six foot six. And most of that was legs. And he was young with lungs and everything else. And here I was a 50-year-old fat guy trying to keep up to him. But uh, we ended up putting on about 100 kilometers loaded on that trip. I think we, we moved three times. And I ended up taking a, just a beautiful 14-year-old ram um, on the second last day of the hunt. And on the way out, um, Trevor actually blew his back out. Um, and it was, it was pretty serious. So I think I ended up carrying probably 140 or 50 pounds out for the last half of that where we could get down to. So I, I felt pretty good about that. Um, you know, being the age I was and, and managed to, it was, it was a hard, hard backpack hunt. It really was. So once again, I was happy. My, my sheep hunting career was, that was as good as it could get. And, um, I did manage to do some international hunting in there and, you know, I hunted Tur in Azerbaijan. I hunted Marco Polo in, in Kyrgyzstan. And these were all pretty reasonable hunts again at that time. And, and they're hunts that haven't gone up a lot in price, I guess, in comparison to, to North American hunts. So during this whole time, I had it in my mind that I really needed to go on a desert sheep hunt. So I had a few buddies who were going to go and, um, you know, I was going to go and it was in my mind. And unless I drew a tag in one of the, the Western states, there was no way that I would ever go on a desert sheep hunt. 
I heard too many disasters about uh, Mexico and um, I just really didn't want to get involved in a Mexican hunt. And then in 2019, a good buddy of mine, Jeff Eno, uh, went on a hunt in Sonora. I took probably one of the most beautiful desert sheep rams I'd ever seen in my life. And Jeff's a guy that I trust and we share a lot of the same hunting values and things like that. So I got a hold of Jeff and said, you know, tell me the story about this hunt. And everything he told me was what I wanted to hear about a, a desert sheep hunt. I mean, it was a hundred percent true free range. Um, you know, they weren't out spotting these rams in advance or anything else. You hunted hard. And um, so I got a hold of Rob Brown from Timber King Outfitting and kind of you know, talked about it. And uh, I'm not sure why, but after that conversation, I'd committed to uh, going on a hunt in, in 2020 with Rob in Sonora. So uh, Vanessa and I went down. So this was um, kind of, there was some talk of a virus or a, something going on in the world at this time, but nobody really knew what it was. It was over in Europe. Nobody was too worried about it. So um, we went to Mexico and um, had a great hunt. I took, um, just an absolutely magnificent ram. Um, the first ram they'd taken off uh, the Siri reservation that had scored actually over 180 inches. It was a 182-inch ram, nine-year-old ram, just everything you could want. And it was a great, great hunt. And the cool thing was I actually took it on uh, February 29th. So it was a leap year. So it was uh, it was my leap year ram. And uh, finished my finaz, but it was weird. And I mean... It, I don't think I could have been with a better guy than Rob at the time because, you know, it wasn't about completing a finaz. It wasn't about collecting four sheep or anything else. It was just about experiencing where all four of those rams lived and, and hunting in those areas. And I was pretty lost for words. And Rob said, he says, you just looked at me and he says, you never thought you'd be here, did you? And it was just that encompassed everything about that hunt. I never thought I would be there. And so, yeah, I guess, so as they say, you know, the rest is history. Um, 32 years later, I, I managed to complete FNAS. I didn't even register my FNAS for a year and a half after that. I just, um, I don't know. I, I didn't know that, I mean, getting recognized for taking a FNAS wasn't really that important to me. But on the other hand, I thought it was really important to recognize the sheep and, you know, the wild areas that those sheep call home. And I know how much pleasure I get looking at other people's pictures and things like that. So I did. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy I did, but it, it still does seem a little bit surreal, I guess. So when you look back and you, you register all four of your sheep, is there one that stands out like as, you know, monumental, is it kind of that last one? Um, you know, the fact that you achieved that or, or was there one hunt? Yeah, I guess, probably talking about the experiences it's probably one of the experiences is there one that stands out for you the most you know what there isn't and um i think they were all just so unique um so special and came at a time in my life that was perfect for each one of those hunts so no like i mean every one of those sheep when i look at them on the wall it's they all kind of mean equal to me and like not one of the hunts really stands out they were all phenomenal hunts they're all great rams and you know I, I kind of appreciate them all equally which i know does sound weird and i, I think a lot of people you know they'll ask you what was the favorite hunt you've ever been on and i can't answer that question either i mean i think my favorite hunts probably the next one so maybe my favorite sheep will be the next one yeah, that's cool. Um, so when you, when, you know, when people ask you about this and, you know, we've seen this and I know you've written an article on this about, you know, this whole new fad about social media and 
you know, how sheep hunting sexy and, you know, people are getting into to, for the wrong reasons in certain cases. Um, you know, how do we sort of, you know, I guess, where's the disconnect? Where did that, where did that all start? Where, you know, you took 32 years to get Rams, you've, you spent, you know, years and years passing Rams over and then people are going out in the field and they feel, no, no, I'm entitled to these Rams. And then because they're putting all this pressure, they end up killing these young Rams that are illegal in some cases, many cases, as we know now, um, how do we change that narrative and what do we do? Like, um, obviously we have a bit of a problem here, um, you know, based on what we've seen this past year and for a few years now. So how do we change that narrative? Well, I, I think that is the million dollar question. And I mean, if, if, if people don't believe that social media is a problem, I mean, the BC government identified social media as one of the reasons they put the Kootenays on draw. So um, I don't know, Kyle, like, I, I really don't know what to say on that. I, I think, you know, it was probably easier in my time. There was a lot less pressure. There was a lot less investment and everything else. So, so there really was never any pressure to to produce. And, and I think, uh, and I don't want to single out anyone. And I know I, I probably caught a lot of flack for singling out the flat rims when I was uh, in my article. And it was definitely done in jest. It, it wasn't um, aimed at a, a specific group for sure. But, you know, we've kind of created this whole brand influencers and everything else nowadays. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on them to produce. And, you know, with pressure comes bad decisions. And I mean, we're seeing bad decisions from hunters. We're seeing bad decisions from guides. We're seeing bad decisions from outfitters. You know, stone sheep hunts are going to be 70 grand this year. Um, there's a lot of pressure. Like when I went on my $5,000 stone sheep hunt, yeah, it was a lot of money, but it, you know, it wasn't, you know, kind of a house down payment or anything. So I, I, somehow we got to get that pressure to produce off. And, and I don't see how that's going to happen. I mean, the demand for North American sheep is absolutely through the roof. And, you know, and I think groups like even wild sheep and GSEO and everything else have, have put so much spotlight on sheep, uh, which is good. I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing that they've done that, but it's also put a lot of spotlight on sheep and, um, you know, they become that one keystone species in North America that seems to define people as hunters. And, you know, I remember back when I first started sheep hunting, I mean, whitetail hunters had way more profile than sheep hunters. Sheep hunters were kind of this offshoot group that were, you know, kind of crazy people that, you know, went in the mountains and hunted, but there was no real profile with it. But now, like, if, if you want to be a, you know, a number one Instagram hunter or something like that, you better have taken a, a sheep or two. So... I wish I had the answer to it. I mean, I, we, I think we all know what the problem is. Um, you know, there's just a lot of pressure to produce for, for everybody right now. And, and with that pressure, I think there's, there is a lot of bad decisions being made. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, but really, how does that change from, you know, is it that much more money? You know, gear is still gear. Guys still go out there without anything. And, um, you know, how are you different than a, a new guy starting out today? Um, I, I think the mentorship piece is part of it, right? Like there's, you know, people going out in the field with that. I've never, every time I've sheep hunted, I've always been with somebody that's been doing it for, for years. Um, you know, yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, really, is, is there that, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's more pressure. There's, there's no doubt about it. I just don't quite understand how is it because there's more sheep hunters that their mistakes are being made or I, you know, just interesting to, to see it's such a big issue this past year. Right. Yeah. Then, you know, I, I guess when I was in my twenties, it was pretty easy to walk away from a Ram because there, there was really no pressure to kill it. Like I wasn't an influencer, 
influencer on Instagram. I hadn't, you know, paid a down payment on a house for the, the sheep hunter. So it, in those ways, I, I guess it was easier, but, you know, maybe the mentorship you know, is, is a big part of it too. And, um, you know, we definitely have a lot of new young sheep hunters just going straight into the game without being mentored in. Um, and I guess I did that too back then, but I know, you know, I've mentored a lot of sheep hunters and I've been on a lot of sheep kills in my lifetime, but boy, we've walked away from a lot of legal sheep too with young sheep hunters. And I think that was a good lesson. And I mean, if I ever went with a sheep hunter who I didn't know well, or was just starting out, I mean, it was always like, you know what, like we're not going to kill young rams and we're not going to call, you know, we're not going to kill anything that's close to questionable. And um, I don't know, you hear sheep hunters talk nowadays and it's, it's almost become like a badge of honor on how close you can call a sheep and things like that. Like I've heard guys in Alberta talking about, well, you know, it doesn't look legal, but there's always that 16th or quarter of an inch of horn under the hair that'll make sure it's legal. And I'm just like, oh my God, like how did we get to that point you know that ram isn't obviously legal and isn't obviously mature um i don't know we as hunters i I think maybe we just need to look a little deeper inside ourselves as hunters and you know why are we really doing this is it to be popular on instagram is it to get a check from a you know a rifle company or is it to hunt sheep and at some point we need to get back to the fact that this is still all about just hunting sheep and and you know, having the privilege of hunting where they live. And, you know, you guys in BC are like, you're losing that privilege fast. And I think that should be a, like a real eye opener for what can happen, um, you know, when there is this kind of abuse of the resource. And, you know, when you have that many short and young sheep being shot, I mean, that is an abuse of the resource and there's consequences to that. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's interesting, you know, with sheep, you know, we talk about the 16th or 32, um, 32 of an inch or whatever the case may be that you just re- referenced there. Um, you'd never do that on a freaking whitetail or a moose, you know, if, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it has to, the tine has to be two inches or whatever. I don't know, pick a number. Um, you wouldn't go, oh, it's two and a quarter or that, you know, that tine need to be that one inch and we're an inch and an eighth. You wouldn't even, you'd just be like, no, it's like, you just, okay, we'll wait for another one. But uh I guess maybe being such a, a challenging species to harvest and, you know, I guess you look at it, three, 400 rams are shot a year in British Columbia. Um, and if you got two, three, 4,000 hunters, your odds are, uh, of success are pretty low. But, you know, I always went in the field knowing that, you know, what do they say? You, you know, the, the year you start hunting is the year your ram was born that you're going to harvest, right? So, um, you know, we, we do know that it's it's difficult. You always have that mindset. You just, if you've seen one, you're just freaking, that was the big thing is if you've seen a legal ram or seen rams, you're happy. If you've seen a legal one, you're ecstatic. And if you've got any chance to kill one, it was just, that, that was the success of the trip right there, right? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I don't know, there doesn't seem to be that you know, pride in walking away from legal rams anymore. The, the pride seems to come from killing them. And uh, it was, uh, I was actually following an instra- interesting um, thread on Facebook the other day. And it was, you know, I think it was who's North America's best sheep hunter. And somebody commented that the, the best sheep hunter in North America was the guy that had walked away from the most rams. And boy, that really struck a chord with mm-hmm. me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not the guy who's killed the most. It's the guy who's walked away from the most. And um and I guess I'd like to say, like, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the rams I've killed, but I'm pretty proud of the fact that, you know, I don't know how many rams I've walked away from, but I, I probably in my lifetime walked away from a hundred legal rams. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. You know, it's interesting. I was talking with Trevor Carruthers on this when all this stuff went down and, you know, there's this uh, Wild Sheep Foundation has this program where take one, put one back. 
and Trev said we need to start some narrative where it's like uh, left one on the mountain or or something like that where you walked away from it, right? You know, some narrative where guys realize and and gals people realize that the right thing to do is to walk away from these rams and just because it and sometimes just because it's legal doesn't make it it makes sense to harvest it anyway, right? Um, there's certain cases where it's like yeah, it is a legal ram, but you know, best just to leave that one on the mountain. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a really good sheep hunting buddy for quite a few years, um, Darren Thompson. And, um, you know, I was probably with Darren on, I don't know, eight or 10 legal rounds. Um, and it took him 15 years to kill his first bighorn. And, you know, he was just in, we actually walked away from some rounds that, you know, probably were, you know, could have been killed, but he just had it in his mind that when he took his bighorn, you know, it was going to be a certain ram. And when he did take his bighorn, it was a certain ram. So I have a lot of, um, you know, res- respect for guys like that, especially, you know, new sheep hunters, younger sheep hunters who do have that kind of patience and just, you know, don't have that bloodlust to kill that first ram. And, you know, that's, I guess, what we need to be teaching uh, to our younger hunters and our newer hunters nowadays is that, you know, there is a lot of pride in, in walking away from a legal ram. Okay, TJ, you just, uh, you just got... Um deemed the guy to change the narrative here. So we're going to need an article from you for our wild sheep magazine um, on that. And really we do need to create that, you know, that environment where people understand that, yeah, it's okay to walk away from, from Rams and certainly, certainly a squeaker. There's no question, but even a legal Ram, you don't need to kill every Ram on the mountain. And in fact, it's, you know, that that's one of the things that Bill Jex has cited with the Kootenays is that, Every year, every legal ram's getting harvested, and that's a problem. You can't have every legal ram shot every year in a region, right? So, um, you know, it's people have to learn to walk away from rams that are just squeakers. It's it's part, it's part, yeah, it's something we're concerned about, right? So, and we're seeing the same thing in Alberta right now too. I mean, you know, we still have a general season, but you know, there's a lot of pressure to take that away from us too. I mean, it's it's easier for managers, and like you say, when there's four and five year old rams being killed. Um, you know, is that, I, I guess, what sheep hunting is all about? I mean, I guess we're still making the argument here that, you know, sheep populations are doing well, but you're right. I mean, we can only harvest so many rams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, somebody that's an aspiring sheep hunter, um, you know, sort of, you know, if you if you were to impart some wisdom um, on a person, they come to you and say, TJ, I want to go sheep hunting. Um, you know, don't have a ton of money. They're just an average working dude or gal that wants to get out there, wants to see sheep. You know, what, what advice would you give someone like that? You know, how do they get involved? How do they get started? Where do they go? Um, how do they learn about it? What, what would you suggest, you know, based on what you've seen? Um, I mean, obviously, if you can find some experienced sheep hunters to go with, it, it's, you know, you're going to learn a lot in a short amount of time. Unfortunately, you know, that isn't always the case. But that really doesn't mean you can't become a sheep hunter. I mean, I guess my standard advice to somebody is, is pick an area that you know is is a good sheep area. Pick an area that's relatively close to home and go spend as much time as you can possibly spend in that area. You know, right from May until, you know, end of sheep season kind of thing. And just keep learning the trails. You know, keep track of where you're seeing sheep at different times of the year. Keep track of where you're seeing sheep, you know, when there's a storm comes in. Um you know, things like that. And I mean, it's, I think learning, you know, and Geist wrote a great book on, you know, the behavior of wild sheep. And I think most people kind of overlook that book because it's not about hunting. And and that was probably one of my Bibles 
um, for sheet books. Um, and I can't even remember the actual name of that book, but it was um, the, it's basically a scientific book on, on the behavior of wild sheep. And once you start to understand sheep behavior and how they react to different stimuli and pressure and things like that, all of a sudden you start to get ahead of the sheep rather than always being behind them. And, it, and I think that's probably been a lot of my success. I mean, you know, where I hunt opening week is nowhere near where I hunt last week of the season. And, um, you know, we're hunting a lot of sheep that are in and out of parks where I am. So, you know, kind of what causes them to move, how do they move? And there's no way you can find that out other than just spending time out there. And to be the best sheep hunter there is, is, is just putting in more and more time. Um, sheep hunting, you know, still is about 90% luck. And, you know, if, if you're out in the field, your chance of getting lucky are a lot better than if you're not in the field. And so that's what I tell people is, is just keep hitting those high percentage spots that you know should hold sheep. You don't need to spend a ton of money on gear or anything else. I mean, it, it doesn't make you a better sheep hunter. I mean, certainly good gear allows you to stay in the field longer. It allows you to travel a little lighter and everything else. But, you know, I'm kind of living proof that, you know, like a semi-fat guy with not the greatest gear can, you know, do pretty good as a sheep hunter. It's, it's, I don't know, people just, I don't think, take the time to really learn about their quarry nowadays. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, you, you also talk about just the time and being close to home and, you know, trying to, it's time in the field. And, you know, I, I've had guys come to me and say, well, you know, I got a week holiday. That should be enough, right? And it's like, well, if you're doing these northern hunts for stone sheep um, and you live in the lower, anywhere in the lower half of the province, you're a day up and a day back. And then you got to get in and get out. So that's almost a day. So if you're, you literally have three days to hunt and three days to harvest a sheep is, and then I guess that's where guys end up putting pressure on themselves and killing something that they shouldn't have. Cause they just didn't have the time to do it. Um, and you know, you said it best there, you were on day 18 of your 14 day hunt. That to me, that's telltale right there. Right. Yeah. And I mean, some of the really successful stone sheep hunters in BC that I know are guys that have gone to the same area for the last 10 years you now. And probably the first three or four years were just learning expensive learning experiences. I mean, they had to pay flights in and everything else, but they stuck with it. They, you know, they found an area, they stuck with it, they learned it. And after about year four or five, they really started to figure those sheep out where they were. And that's when they became successful. To think you can just jump in a plane, fly into a lake and climb up a mountain and kill a sheep. I mean, it does happen. But if you want to be truly successful and truly consistent, um, you got to put your time in. And I think that's, I guess, one of the things I find with a lot of new sheep hunters nowadays is they don't want to invest that time. And I mean, for a guy like yourself, who's, you know, on the island kind of thing, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big investment to, uh, you know, have to get out there and do that. But uh, if you want to be successful, there's no, there's no shortcut. Yeah. And you even pointed it out, you know, you know, your, your early season versus your late season spot are totally different. So, you know, if you got somebody that's going into a new area every time, and they and they even you know change the time of year you know you go in in august and then all of a sudden you're going in in late september you know those are different animals right they're starting to get in their winter range and stuff like that so it's uh you know it certainly is something that um yeah it, there's no freebies there and you know you, a lot of boot leather and time to figure that out yeah and i mean for me I, I would say that late season sheep are the easiest sheep to kill and they're the hardest sheep to kill they're the easiest sheep to kill in the fact that they're, they are very easy to pattern. Um, once you figure late season sheep out, where they move, how they react to snowstorms and things like that. Um, you know, if we have a snowstorm here, I can pretty much guarantee you in three days, 
where I could take and show you a legal RAM. The hard part about it is just surviving in there. I mean, you know, the snow might be waist deep. You might be snowshoeing in. You might be camping in minus 20 or 30 temperatures. So, but I mean, if, if you want to kill big rams, um, especially rams that are living on the edges of, you know, like mines in BC and parks and things like that, late season is the absolute time to do it. And the more horrendous the weather, uh, the more your odds increase. I mean, I love going out like our season goes till October 31st here in Alberta. And I love going out that last week. I mean, it's, you'll rarely see a sheep hunter opening week. You know, there'll probably be a, a thousand guys out there sheep hunting. And that last week there might be 10 guys out there. And so you've got way less guys and way more sheep, but you know, you either got to be tough or stupid to be out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, th that's where I learned, you know, too, is uh, you talked about that mentorship piece. And uh, with me, I went to our, you know, our local Wild Sheep BC show, right? And that's where I met sheep hunters. And that was part of the mentorship piece and a big part of the information I got um, and certainly helped me. Um, so, yeah, if you don't have a TJ, I guess you can come to, you know, your local chapter affiliate or WSF uh, banquet to meet people. Oh, and I mean, there's there's so many knowledgeable sheep hunters out there, and and most of the guys are willing to share to a point. Uh, but I think most guys are willing to share if you're willing to invest the time. Um, if you just want to pick their brain so you can go kill an easy sheep to say you killed a sheep, you're probably not going to get much help. Um, if you want to become a sheep hunter and put your time in, uh, yeah, I was talking to uh, when I was uh, when I was out on the island, I was out for a Roosevelt elk hunt last fall, and my guide was. Uh, Aaron Parade, I'm sure you know. And, you know, he's a pretty serious sheep hunter and, you know, he's taking some guys out. But I mean, you know, if you go with him, you're probably going to carry his pack and some of his gear for the first two or three years. And, you know, you're going to have to earn a sheep. And I, I think that is, you know, if you're willing to put that kind of dedication in, you're probably going to find a lot of mentors that'll, that'll work with you. But if, if you just want somebody to lead you up the mountain to kill a sheep, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> yeah awesome oh good um so will, will you take me will, sorry i say it like it is but... will, will, will you take me chief i think tj no, I'm just so, well I, yeah. I, there goes that ask <laughs> uh yeah awesome yeah for sure um okay so let's talk a little bit about you know we talked about you don't need the greatest gear you don't need this and that um i know you do a ton of gear articles and stuff like that you know, what are guys really, what are the really important stuff? And, you know, we hear a lot of this stuff pretty consistently, consistently, but what, when you're taking someone new in the field, what are some of the things that you say, okay, you need to have these things. What's really um, critical. When, and I think we've gone lightweight, stupid. Um, you know, we've, we've kind of gone too far over the edge on lightweight gear. I mean, lightweight gear, don't get me wrong, is, is super important because when you're packing everything on your back, it, the lighter that pack is, the better. But there comes a point when gear gets too light that it just can't do what you ask it to. But uh, first and foremost, and especially like I do a lot of late season sheep hunting. So so clothing is, is definitely high on the list. And we're at a time right now where there is so much good clothing out there that, uh, you know, I kind of look back and I mean, I think my pants and jacket probably weighed about five or six pounds when I first started sheep hunting and, you know, probably didn't have the, the R value of what weighs a pound now. So definitely spend some money on, you know, good base layers, a good insulation layer and some good rainwear. And without that, 
you know, you're not going to last. If you're not comfortable in mountains, you're not going to stay in the mountains. Um, obviously a good backpack and again, backpacks have come so far in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, you know, they've got lighter weight, they've got more comfortable, um, good pair of boots, obviously. And, you know, and I think I always kind of laugh at the boot questions on, on sheep hunting pages. What are the best boots for me? Well, I don't know. I have no idea what your feet are like. Everybody's feet are different. I mean, you know, boots that are super comfortable for me might make you crippled. So unless you try out a lot of boots, I mean, you're kind of wasting your time just asking other people. I mean, sure, you can ask what other people are using, but don't think those boots are going to work for you. Um, I'm still a big guy on having a decent sleeping bag and a, and a tent. Um, I know there's been a real move lately to get away from tents, you know, going to, to hammocks and tarps and things like that. For the extra pound or pound and a half, whatever, if I can get in a tent and if I'm stuck in there for a day or two days or I can get some gear spread out, to me, it's, it's all about staying in the mountains. And if you're not comfortable, you're not going to stay in there. Like if, if you can find any excuse to get out of the mountains um, when things are miserable, you'll probably get out of the mountains. But, you know, if, if you're relatively comfortable in there, um, do it. Uh, food is another one that's come so far. Um, you know, there's so many great freeze-dried food options out there nowadays and, you know, good calories in them, you know, good flavor in them, which is when we first started, I mean, freeze-dried food was just horrendous. And uh, we used to carry, it was funny, we used to carry packaged food. It was like the freeze-dried food nowadays, but it was already hydrated. It was just like canned food, but it was in a bag and you drop the bag and it, in some boiling water. But it was for the time, it was good. But, you know, when I think about my first sheep hunts, like to go in for two or three days, we were like 70, 80 pounds. And, you know, I can probably do that same hunt nowadays with 45 or 50 pounds of gear on my back. So that's made a lot of difference. And, you know, we've replaced what we used in those times with better gear that's lighter. So when I talk about getting too light, um, you know, I see guys taking sleeping bags now that there's at some point there's got to be insulation and insulation makes weight. So, I mean, if if you've got a sleeping bag that, you know, you think is going to keep you warm at minus 10, but it, it's not you know, you're going to have the most miserable time of your life out there. So be a little bit careful. Um, I know sleeping bags are like carp on those a lot because I like to sleep well, but you know, sleeping bags have got so small too, like for bigger guys, you can't even move in them and I don't sleep well. So I want a bag with a, a little bit more room in it. Um, talk about rifles. Rifles are another thing that, you know, we've kind of gone a little bit lightweight crazy on them. Um, I don't shoot a super lightweight rifle well. Um, and we talk about super lightweights nowadays, I've seen rifles that are four and a half, five pounds, and I just personally don't shoot them well. And I, I would think a lot of guys probably don't either, but you know, there's, there's a real badge of honor nowadays to say, I've got a four and a half pound rifle. Yeah. But does it shoot? Do you shoot it? Well, uh, my ideal sheep rifle, bear rifle weighs, you know, five and three quarters to six and a half pounds. I mean, it's, I, to me, I shoot that rifle well. It feels solid. I know when I shoot it. Um, scope's another thing. Um, I'm I'm a bit of a long-range shooter, and whatever your thoughts on long-range shooting, that's fair enough. But um, I practice a lot at long range, so uh, I use scopes with probably a little higher magnification than most people would. I'm running a 4 to 14 on most of my, my sheep rifles. Um, that scope's going to come in probably close to a pound and a half. So, I mean, you know, it'd be pretty easy to lose half a pound on that going to a, you know, a fixed six power or something like that. But um, I like a 
scope with a good high magnification and a scope I, I know I can trust in the mountain. So that's what I've gone with. I'm running turrets on all my scopes now too. So, and I mean, for me, long range, like, I mean, we practice religiously to 800 yards. I mean, it's, and most of my rifles are, you know, kind of easy 600 yard rifles, but um, that doesn't mean the guy driving them is a 600 yard shooter. You know, you've got to practice, practice, practice. So a lot of sheep aren't taken at long range, but um there is those odd opportunity you're going to get. Um, my desert sheep was 618 yards. There was not a chance in the world we were going to get closer to it, no matter how many days we waited or what else we did. So it was either take that shot or not get the ram. And I felt 100% comfortable taking it. Uh, as far as rifles and you know calibers go, um, I've kind of gone away from the big magnums. Um, I, I think we all kind of go through that phase where you know bigger and faster is better and um, you know, as, as much as it's hated and maligned nowadays, I mean, I still like that little six five Creedmoor <laughs> as a as a mountain rifle. I mean, it's it's a short action rifle, uh, very low recoil, super effective about the five hundred yards. So, um, you know, kind of whatever works for you. But you know, I shoot enough in a year that I've I've kind of come to the point where I don't really like shooting high recoil rifles anymore um you know when you're running a couple thousand rounds through a rifle um you know it can beat you up pretty bad so i think and maybe that comes with age too i think maybe the older you get um and good optics you know good binos and a good spotting scope um 10 power binos uh i like range finding binos i think the worst thing you can do is ever try a pair of range finding binos because it's going to cost you you know probably half the price of a, a new vehicle but um they're the way to go if you and i run 10 by 44s and they're great and then you have to have a spotting scope um you know in british columbia alberta the yukon northwest territories we have legal requirements on ramps and that can be a curl it could be an age and without a good quality spotting scope um there is no way you can accurately age a ram at you know four or five hundred yards just a quick um, story about spotting scopes and how important they are. Uh, when Vanessa killed her bighorn, um, we knew it was a nice mature ram. There was no doubt about that. But Alberta had a, a four-fifths um, curl regulation on it. And we were 250 yards from this ram. And it was deep snow. And every time he went down to eat, he'd come up and there was a little bit of snow on the tips of his rams. And he was just one of those big, loose, curled rams. And he ended up scoring 170 inches. He was a big ram. But... Um, he just one of those rams that didn't tip up. So like we spent forever and ever and ever looking through that spotting scope until we were a hundred percent sure that he was legal. And like I say, that was at 250 yards. So when you're trying to age rams or trying to, you know, look at curls at, you know, seven, 800, a kilometer away kind of thing without really high quality optics, um, you're kind of wasting your time out there. And, um, you know, unless you're shooting, only shooting rams that are, you know, way, way legal. Um, there's no way you can do that. And spotting scopes, I mean, I, I find most of my rams with binoculars, um, but you absolutely do need that spotting scope for when it comes time to judge legality, especially nowadays. Um, you know, like, I don't know how many rams were killed in BC that last year that were illegal. I heard like something like 30 and that, yeah. you know, that should never happen. Yeah, and you know, you talk about weight and weight savings, um, and I guess for you know newer sheep hunters out there, new sheep hunter is that you know you talked about yeah, you could go into the mountains or forty or forty five or fifty pounds or something like that in your pack. Well, you know, it's all a trade off, right? Yeah, you can show up 
with a pair of eight power binos and no spotter um, and save three or four pounds on your your optics or you know and also you know as an example if you're going on a, a two-week sheep hunt in the backcountry um, your pack's going to be a hell of a lot heavier than if you're going for five days because um, uh, 14 days worth of food versus five days of food that's you know that's at least 20 pounds worth of extra weight there so you know it's all a trade-off too right so not not being super light isn't always the answer and the other side of it is keeping in mind that once you get to your base camp or, or your spike camp you know, you're day hunting, you don't need, you know, you're all kind of the same weight at that point, generally, right? It's not like you're carrying all this gear with you, your tent and your, you know, your sleeping bag and everything like that. So yeah, I know exactly. And I'm, you know, like, I get the super light philosophy. I mean, it, it definitely allows you to move faster and further. And, you know, now, especially in the days of the athlete sheep hunters and things like that, a lot of that's become critical. But um, I don't know, th- there still is, I think a really good argument for being comfortable in the mountains because you'll stay there a lot longer. I mean, unless you've been snowed in for three or four days in a tent, um, not being able to move, you don't really appreciate how much good gear matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, that's given me lots to thought, think about. I'm going to go and sell some of my gear now and buy some new crap. So. <laughs> what I mean, the other thing is you don't have to buy, you know, the super expensive sheep hunting gear. I mean, there's lots of off-market clothing nowadays that's, you know, designed for the mountains, made with the high-quality fabrics, everything else. I mean, it maybe not have the cool logo or the cool camo on it, but it doesn't mean, I mean, you know, when I started sheep hunting, you know, we were using basically what the uppies were using in the mountains because it was good gear and there was no sheep hunting clothing at that time. So there's a lot of that good quality gear still out there if you look for it. And, you know, if you really don't care about being part of the the crowd, I guess. And not saying that the in camo and the in fashions aren't great gear. They are. I mean, they're, they're, they're as good a gear as it gets, but don't, I guess, be fooled into thinking you need to spend $700 on a on a jacket or $500 on a pair of pants. Cause there are some good options out there. If you look around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you have a gear list that you share with guys that you take out that you're mentoring? Do you kind of say here, this is what you need or how do you do that? I am the most disorganized person you've ever met, Kyle. Um, <laughs> I kind of go down in my basement and throw a bunch of stuff on the floor and kind of, and then every, <laughs> every hunt's the same. It's terrible. And I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I should have a gear list and no, I don't. And, um, and unfortunately, like, cause we're shooting television pretty much all the hunts we do. So I, I pretty much got another 15 pounds of gear that, um, you know, most people don't have when I do my doll sheep hunt in the, or in, um, in the Northwest territories, um, my pack was 83 pounds. Um, I had like 25 pounds of camera gear in it, or maybe 30 pounds of camera gear in it. So, um, yeah. So, so I kind of, and that's, I guess why I'm not so hung up on, man, you need to be super lightweight because, I've never been super lightweight and part of it, I mean, the camera gear has got so much lighter over the years too, which has, has really helped us. Uh, I talk about that stone sheep hunt that, you know, I, I filmed back in the nineties that kind of got me going on stone sheep. We had 125 pounds of camera gear on that hunt. We had one dedicated pack horse just for the camera gear. So, I mean, that's kind of how much things have changed over the years. So, I mean, all these <laughs> You know, all these hunters nowadays with a super lightweight, it's the only way you can kill a sheep. It's the only way you can kill a sheep. Well, no, it isn't. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some great advantages to it, but don't necessarily get caught up in the fact um, that you can't go still with a 60 or 65 pound pack and kill a sheep. Yeah, right on. Um, well, lots more that we can talk about there, but, uh, you know, um, one thing I wanted to touch base on before we kind of wrapped up was, uh, 
you know, you, you, Wild Sheep Society BC, we're a conservation organization. We're always watching what you're doing out there in Alberta, and you, you put a ton, ton of time and effort on the conservation side of things. Where did that kind of come from for you? Where did your motivation to get involved so heavily in the conservation side of things come from, TJ? And that's another good question. I don't know. It's just it's just always been a passion I've had. I mean, and I've always been kind of a, a student of biology and things like that, it, just in an amateur way. But it, like I've always really took an interest in, you know, the behavior of animals. And, you know, most of my hunting books are behavioral um, textbooks and things like that on on animals. And I think the more you start to learn about an animal's habit, um, habitat, requirements, and things like that, the more you start to realize how this all comes together. Like if we want to have more sheep on the mountain, um, it doesn't start with reducing hunting seasons or anything else. I mean, it starts with quality habitat. And I know if we as hunters who, you know, are still the, the primary consumptive user of this wildlife, um, if we can't get involved and give back to that in a, in a very constructive manner, you know, we're not going to have hunting for that much longer. And I mean, unfortunately, you know, with sheep, especially like a lot of the conservation work I do with other species is on private land. So it's, it's very easy to do. Uh, the problem with sheep is they exist primarily on crown land. And so without the government's involvement in a lot of the stuff, I mean, you know, you just can't go do a burn on a mountain just because, you know, it'd be good for sheep. So I, I think that's been one of the biggest challenges. And, and I think that's where groups like wild sheep are, are totally so valuable because, you know, you need that collective group of people being involved to ever get, even get the government's attention. And I know sometimes in Alberta, we look at what you guys are doing in BC as far as habitat work with Envy. I mean, you know, and I'm sure you don't feel that you have a lot of cooperation from the government some days, but compared to what we have here, it just, like, we can't even get a burn done here. Like, it, it, it's so ridiculous. But, I mean, it, and I think that's the frustrating part as not only as hunters, but as hunter conservationists, is we can look at that big picture and kind of go, okay, this is obvious what needs to be done, but nobody's doing it and nobody's letting us do it. And so I think part of conservation is getting out there on the ground, doing that work. But unfortunately, a bigger part of conservation these days is lobbying and it's really frightening when we have to lobby the government to be better conservationists. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It, it is scary, and you know, we just we had a burn two weeks ago, and our our last podcast was on this. And you know, uh, the hard part was not doing the burn. The money was there, the support was there, everything was there. It was trying to get the regulatory approvals for it. And I get it. There's got to be rules. We got to be smart about it. We can't just go out and burn crap for whatever reason. But the the hardest part of that whole habitat. Uh, restoration project was all the regulatory approvals relating to government trying to jump through all the hoops and play the game and um and some of it was pretty excessive you know you'd be like really is this is that but at the end of the day there was a bunch of stuff we had to do and that you know I, our team was pretty frustrated with some of those challenges around that right so. I remember I sat on a, a burned government burn committee here for quite a few years and uh, I remember at one meeting um, you know, one of the biologists brought up the fact, well, we don't even really know if burns are beneficial. So, and it was, you know, it was kind of at that point, like that everybody at the table kind of went, why are we wasting our times here if we haven't even agreed to the fact that burns are beneficial? But, and I think predator management is, is another, um, you know, it's such a social issue right now is a problem. I mean, we all know we have way too many predators. We all know that we have too much predation, especially on sheep right now. And, 
Um, you know, it's another hard one. Um, you know, we've got unique problems in Alberta. We've got a lot of feral horses here, and those feral horses are starting to impact a lot of sheep winter range. So, you know, it's just we're trying to manage by by social values and emotions and things like that. And at some point, everybody just needs to step back and remember, like, this is pretty simple biology. Um, you know, it's not rocket science here. And yeah, you're, you're going to piss off some voters. But at some point, the animals have to come first. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I think sheep are kind of that canary in a coal mine. Um, as far as our wildlife goes, I mean, um, you know, it's it's pretty limited amount of habitat that's available to them. I mean, you see these vast expanses of wilderness in northern BC and things, but you look at the small areas where stone sheep live and, you know, you go in the Kootenays and you start micro, you know, looking at that and there's not a lot of habitat there for them. And, you know, every time some aspen grows up or every time a new, you know, a cougar moves in and, you know, becomes a sheep specialist, the impact on that species is is it's monumental. You know, it's not like white-tailed deer that ha- do have a lot of habitat or, you know, mule deer that have a lot of habitat. I mean, you know, if you have one cougar comes in, I mean, it, could, it can be detrimental to a, a small population of deer or something like that. But in the big picture, it, it's a lot less of an impact um, than it is to sheep. I mean, I don't know. We just, we, we really need to start, I, I think, protecting um, I, I hate that word protecting, but because um, we don't really want to protect it, we want to enhance and and improve um, what we're losing. And I don't know. To me, that's every sheep hunter sh- should be involved um, some way, whether it's in the lobby, whether it's in the on the ground work. Um, yeah, and, and if sheep hunters aren't a member of wild sheep, I mean, you know, you, you probably shouldn't even be in the mountains. Yeah, I, that that is a one of my pet peeves. Is <laughs> is the, you know you 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 got you got one thing that you're interested in, and you're you're not supporting that. I just don't I don't yeah get that. But uh, that's a whole other argument. My favorite is when they say, "Well, I bought a tag. I've done my part, <laughs> right? I bought my license. <laughs> I did my part." So anyway, whole other conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it won't go down that rabbit hole today. But uh, I get I, I get that's one thing we all very much agree. Not that we haven't agreed with everything on this call, but. Uh, um, cool. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, what, what does it look like for fall plans for you? What, what's next on the agenda? You, you got some shoots going on, you got, uh, hunts. What, what do you got planned? Yeah, well, we've got a, like a crazy busy spring. Uh, we were in Spain. We hunted, uh, the four Ibex species in Spain in April, um, went to South Africa in May and actually hunted some pretty cool mountain species there. I don't think a lot of people really think about hunts in South Africa as being mountain hunts, but we were hunting at 7,500, 8,000 feet uh, for some very unique native mountain species there. Um, I was just out on the island and did a a black bear cougar hunt, which um, I had no idea you could hunt cougar in June on the island. Um, And to hunt black bear and cougar on the same hunt is... um, I don't know. I don't know. I've never, ever heard of anyone doing it before. So um, that was pretty amazing. Uh, Summer, I'm going to be doing a lot of work. Uh, I coordinate some wildlife friendly fencing projects here in Alberta, primarily aimed at pronghorn, but we do a lot of work for elk and mule deer as well. So that's kind of take up most of my summer. And then once we get into fall, um, you know, it'll be back to the mountains here, chasing bighorns. I should draw a pronghorn tag this year. Uh, We may do a mountain moose hunt and then um, elk and... Uh, just all those good things that we have here and then I, you know, it starts all over again, but uh, yeah, I just really looking forward to 
getting some just torrential rains here right now. We've been kind of in a drought um, in Southern Alberta for the past year and a bit. So the, the rains are welcome. Um, unfortunately, the rivers are rising fast and there's quite a few towns on flood alert. But if that doesn't happen, uh, this rain will be... The pro- we had a big flood in 2013. I don't know if everyone remembers out here in Alberta, but it was just it was just a disastrous flood. We had, I think, 300 mils of rainfall in 24 hours in the high mountains. And it, it was devastating to a lot of the towns downstream. But it changed everything in the mountains. Like all our horse trails to get into sheep country or hiking trails to get into sheep country changed just dramatically. So again, every time you get big rains like this in the mountains, it's like, am I going to have to relearn sheep hunting again, all over again? You know, what I've known for the last 34 years, all of a sudden really means nothing because you can't get in there anymore. So that may be one of the challenges this summer is just getting back out on some trails and learning them again. Yeah, right on. Interesting. Well, uh, fingers crossed that uh, this this rain is going to help the farmers and uh, the producers and, and not do too much damage to the wildlife and, and do any flooding. So, yeah, not great. Cool. Well, um, I can't thank you enough, TJ, for coming on the show. We appreciate all you do and just I uh, love, you know, everything you stand for, man. You just have such uh, great messaging around uh, hunting and conservation and, and wildlife and um, mountain species and just always appreciate you. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, cool. Thanks for having me. I mean, you guys are doing a great job here and I mean, keep spreading that word. We need to, uh, I guess, not only get more sheep on the mountain, but get more habitat on the mountain. Yeah, some of the me- right some of the memes he sends me in private messages are pretty rocking too. So yeah, those are awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm banned from Facebook right now, <laughs> yeah. so it's okay. So <laughs> twenty twenty four hour ban last night for sharing a business post. Like, come on, <laughs> it's a, it's a brave new world, isn't it? It is, but uh, oh well, we keep getting the message out. It's all we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, TJ. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much.